Welcome to Me, Myself, and Millie, a podcast that gives light and levity to infertility and different pathways to parenthood, hosted by me, Millie Brooks. Welcome back, everyone. Today is a very, 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 very important episode with a very important person, the amazing embryologist Kristen Jones is with us today. Kristen is under the Instagram handle, I Like My Eggs Fertilized, so go follow her there. She's on the show to talk all about what she does in that laboratory after you go through an egg retrieval. She is very active in helping people understand more about the fertilization process during IVF. And we are so lucky to have her here today. Um, She's basically going to demystify the embryo-making process and answer the $1 million question, which is, did they transfer the correct embryo? Come on. You know it has crossed your mind. Well, we are going to ask Kristen all of those embarrassing science lab questions and get her reassurance on the process. So stay tuned. This is your friendly reminder to please rate, review, and subscribe to Me, Myself, and Millie on Apple Podcasts. Get regular updates about the podcast on Instagram at Me, Myself, Millie. So follow us there and stay up to date on all the deets. Okay, here's Kristen. Kristen, it's so wonderful to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Hello, I'm so good. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm, you know, it's 7.30 in the morning. I've never gotten up this early to (laughs) record an episode, so just consider yourself special. Oh, I'm very lucky. No, I appreciate this. Thank you. Um, what, what do your days look like right now? What do my days look like? Oh gosh, I'm keeping myself busy. I'm busy working. I've got my two little kids. Um, and yeah, in the whole world of the Corona, we're all, we're all very busy, but uh, lucky to be lucky to be safe and healthy. Yeah, absolutely. Are your kids in school? Yeah. My, well, my little girl's in, um, my four-year-old is in kindy and my little boy is in daycare. So not in school yet. Um, but, uh, yeah, so kindy full-time school next year. Got it. Well, let's dive in here. Um, why don't we start with a little bit of a background about who you are, where you live and how you became an embryologist? Yeah. Okay. So my name is Kristen, um, and I am in Perth, Australia, and I became, and actually when I finished high school, when I was doing high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I went to do a science degree and did my undergrad, uh, still didn't know what I wanted to do and then found out that an IVF internship was a possibility. So that really excited me because I'd always been fascinated with fertility, but I just, um, you know, to me, that was just a doctor thing. I didn't know that um, I could do anything like that without a medical degree. So I did that internship and tried to get a job in IVF 
but uh, jobs in RBF are very hard to find. They are far and few between. So I had to do a postgraduate qualification. So I did do a master's degree uh, while I was working. So I got a job after uni, at the uni. The uni gave me a job. And um, while I was working there, I did my master's. And it wasn't until I actually finished that master's I was able to get a job in IVF. Um, so that was how I became an, an embryologist. So I started in sperm lab. And then um, so you get trained up in sperm lab and then you get to go through to embryology. Sperm lab. I yes. love that. It sounds like a video game. <laughs> it does actually, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. So what is your train what was your training like in sperm lab? Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty full on. It, it can be quite stressful, but um yeah, the days in sperm lab you're trained how to you just spend repetition after repetition of um, counting sperm and just counting counting counting. We have little counting chambers. No, and we, um, don't stop. We it. do. And then we've got like a little counting pad with buttons on it and then you have to like tap 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 and then it counts it for you. Um and then you just do that over and over and over and over until you know how to count quickly and efficiently and you analyze sperm slides for the morphology over and over and over again until you match up with all the experienced embryologists and um, you do the counts you work out the motilities and those calculations you just do over and over and over until you close your eyes and you can see sperm swimming oh my gosh and there's millions of sperm like yes luckily we don't count millions luckily we've got these little grids that are able to um we can count a few and it gives us a calculation of what's in there so we don't literally have to count millions okay because I um, was imagining you guys (laughs) having to count millions and millions oh no yeah yeah so luckily luckily it's a lot more simple than most people think but yeah that is a question I've gotten asked a few times is how on earth do you actually count sperm but um yeah so that's what training in sperm lab is is you do it over and over and over again and um yeah until until you can do it efficiently wow now I've never um just to give us a basic sperm you know a sperm class can you break mm. down morphology, mor- motility, and what else? Concentration? Is there? Yes, concentration. Concentration, yeah, yeah. So when we're doing a semen analysis, we're looking for those three things. So the first thing we do is when we're putting this, um, the sperm on the counting chamber is to do a count of the concentration. So we use our little counting buttons in our little counting chamber, and that gives us a calculation of how many million per mil. And to be in the normal range, we want that to be over 15 million per mil. So I'm sure different labs will have different guidelines, but that's the World Health Organization guideline. And um, for the first samples and the motility as well so when we're counting the concentration we'll count the sperm that are not moving at all the sperm that are they're moving well they're alive but they're not swimming forward and then the sperm that are actually swimming so the progressive ones so based on the calculation of those three we get a motility calculation so we want at least 32 percent progressive sperm or 40% total motile. And then the morphology is done separately. So that's done on a slide that gets dried, that gets stained, that gets dried again, and then that gets analysed after it's been stained and we're assessing the shape of those sperm. So the the normal sperm have a perfectly, perfectly oval head. You can see their little mid piece, it's not too thick, and then they've got a nice tail. Whereas you can get head abnormalities, mid piece abnormalities, or tail abnormalities. So um, we want to see at least 40% 
4% normal forms, which is quite low, but that's that's the normal range. You only need to have 4% to be considered normal. So 4% morphology, is that what Yeah, normal, mor- normal morphology. morphology. And have yeah. you ever seen a sperm with three heads? I've seen two. I no. I've seen three. I've seen three tails. Yes. That's, that's um, interesting. Yes. I can't say I've seen three heads off the top of my head, but, yeah, I've definitely seen two. You get do see that quite often. And two tails or, you know, three tails I'm sure I've seen as well. Wow. Fascinating. Yes. Um, okay, great. Well, why don't we um, – I believe you also have had um, – a little bit of your own fertility journey. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, So for myself, I think I'm just one of those very, can be quite obsessive, quite overly organized in some areas of my life. And fertility was one of those things. I really got onto it much, much sooner than I probably should have. And a lot of people probably thought I was completely crazy, but I knew from um, a young age that I just wasn't getting periods or I'd get a few a year or there'd be, you know, three months between cycles, two months between cycles, whatever they were. And um, so I did go and um, get a referral to an endocrinologist and I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome and that was like three years or, yeah, maybe two or three years before my husband and I even wanted to start trying for a baby. And then um, before we started trying, I was doing tracking as well, tracking on my own with body temping and then had some blood tracking as well. So. Um, by the time it came to us actually wanting to try for a baby, um, I already knew I wasn't ovulating. So I already knew that I was going to need help. And um, that enabled us to get a big head start and get put straight onto ovulation induction drugs. So um, we went into that kind of thinking, yep, yep, this is going to work, you know, straight away, super quickly, because my husband had really good sperm. But um, I didn't respond to the drugs at all. So I had a cancelled cycle. And then, again, the next cycle had another cancelled cycle, just the drugs didn't work for me. But uh, somewhere after, in between getting my next cycle starting, I did get pregnant. So that was our first baby. And then the second one was a bit harder. We just had lots of cycles where nothing was happening, where uh, they didn't put me on the drugs because I was ovulating and then I was just having lots of negative cycles and nothing was happening. And then eventually, luckily, with hormonal tracking and um, the blood tests and being able to tell me when I was ovulating, I did was lucky enough to get pregnant again. Okay, got it. Got it. So you you just, um, you you guys were able to, um, achieve your pregnancy just through medicated cycles. Is that yes, correct? Yes, yeah, and the, and the tracking, yeah. And the yeah, tracking. And the tra- got yes. it, got it. Well, so we were very lucky, yes. And um, so what is the number one question you get as an embryologist? Mm, that would be why. Like why did my eggs not fertilise? Mm. Why, why did they not divide on? You know, why? Um, why are they poor quality? Why, why are they not looking how you want them to look? Or in cases where they've had perfect embryos put in, um, why did it not work? You know, I had a really good embryo put in, why didn't it work? Um, so with embryology and with sperm lab, um, there's many different areas along the way. There's lots of different steps along the way that have to go well for success. And so it's very common for people at any of those steps to be like, why? 
I just don't understand why my embryos are poor quality. I just don't understand why I got poor fertilization. So, um, and a lot of the reason we, a lot of the time, sorry, we don't have a reason. I don't, I don't even think the doctors can give them a reason a lot of the time, but that would definitely be a question I get asked quite often. Mm. Yeah. It must be different for everyone too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so let's get into PGS testing. Um, and how common is it in Australia? It is common. It's not routinely, I believe in the States at some labs, it's routinely given to most patients. In Australia, you have to actually be approved. So I'm in Western Australia and we have the um, Reproductive Technology Council. So in order to have to be approved for um, for PGS testing, an application actually has to go through by your clinic um, with stating a reason why you need it. Um, you can't just decide that you want to. Um, however, if you are of advanced maternal age, which I believe they class as over 35, if you've suffered multiple miscarriages before or multiple, so you've been through multiple cycles where you haven't had success, or if you know that you carry a genetic disease, then, yeah, they just put in the application and... Um, they'll decide whether or not they approve for you to have it done, um, which I think is good because there are lots of risks involved and I don't agree with everyone just having it done routinely, but I do think for the for the for those groups of patients that could it, it could definitely be a massive benefit for. But due to the risks involved, I definitely wouldn't say that everybody should just have it done. Can you go into the risks involved? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not a genetic scientist, but I can go over some of the basic stuff. And I'm sure that when patients discuss this with their doctors, the doctors are going to go into it on a much more um, detailed level. But there's physical risks involved in terms of the biopsy. So, the biopsy can actually damage the embryo. Now, when you're taking cells from that embryo, they can actually regenerate those cells just fine. So, a lot of the time, the embryo is perfectly fine. However, there is risk of damage to the embryo during the biopsy. It also then needs to be frozen while you're awaiting the test results and then needs to be thawed out. So your embryo has to go through that process and it has to survive each step of the way. Now, we've also got what is called mosaic embryos where some cells in the embryo are normal, some cells are abnormal. So there is a risk that the embryo will test as abnormal when really the majority of the embryo was fine and so we're going to discard the embryo because that testing, that test says that it's an abnormal embryo. So I don't know what percentage of the time that happens, but I know that that is a risk that some doctors do discuss with their patients. Um, and the um, and I, I guess you've just got risks involved in the testing that they it may not work, you may get a no result, um, or just it may be an incorrect result. I don't know how, how likely that is to happen. Um, studies do show that there was a study published a couple of years ago that showed patients under the age of 35, there were no benefits and there may even be possible detriments to those patient cycles, whereas if you are over the age of 35, there were more pronounced benefits. Um, so, and I believe, yeah, taking into account, in, into account those risks, that would probably explain why. Yeah. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, in Australia, you don't test the gender the sex? You can't choose to. No, you can't choose to. So if you're having the genetic testing, then yeah, we will know which embryos are um, which genders. We don't even get told. So if I'm transferring a um, genetically tested embryo, I wouldn't know if whether it is male or female um, and the patient can't decide. 
Oh, wow. So it's up to us to choose the embryo that has the heart implantation potential. Got it. So even the embryologist doesn't know the gender. Yeah. Oh, like I'm sure different labs will have different ways of doing it. They may get different um, access to different reports. I don't get access to those reports. I'm just told, you know, which ones are normal, which ones to thaw out. Um, But I'm sure different labs have different ways of doing that. Got it. Got it. Um, That's fascinating because I think the same is in Canada. Yeah. They... um, they don't allow you to choose the gender. It's just the best, strongest embryo. Yes. Yeah. Um, interesting. Well, let's unpack the embryo grading systems. How reliable are they and how do you grade an embryo? Yeah, so it's important to know that different clinics are going to have their own grading systems. But what it is is that we're all looking for the same thing. We just have different codes of writing it down. So um, in terms of being reliable, well, yeah, it's good because it gives us a way of choosing the embryo that we think has the highest implantation potential. So absolutely, when we've got a group of embryos to choose from, we we want to do our best to choose the embryo that we think has the best shot. Absolutely, we want something to go by. Um, so with a day three embryo, that's what we call a cleavage stage embryo, they uh, should be between, you know, diff- there's going to be different criteria in different areas of the world in different labs, but six to 12 cells, let's just say. And um, we're going to be looking at how evenly sized those cells are. If the cells are picture perfect and they're all perfectly round and there's no fragmentation at all, I'd give that a grade one. Other labs might give that a good um, rather than a fair or a poor. So I'd give that like a grade one. If it's got a little bit of fragmentation and the cells don't look as perfect, I'd give it a grade two and that's still good. That's, you know, that's an average embryo. That's fine. And then when you get to the heavily fragmented embryos where the cells are quite uneven, that would be a grade three or a poor. Um, now, when you're getting to your blastocysts, we've got your trophectoderm cells around the outside and your inner cell mass in the middle and the cavity as well, which is how expanded that embryo is. So we're going to be grading uh, the expansion, so whether it's a blastocyst, an expanded blastocyst, a hatching or hatched. Um, So some labs will have numbers for this, so three, four, five, six, Um, and then inner cell mass and trophectoderm ABC. Um, And once again, some labs will do good, fair, poor. Um, some, Some labs I've heard will do six different levels. Some labs will only do two different levels. So it's just up to the lab what they do. Um, and essentially, you know, if we've got a group of embryos, we've got some that are good, we've got some that are fair, we're obviously going to be looking at those good ones to um, to be choosing between those ones for which ones are the best ones to use first. And there's a lot of talk about day five versus day six. Do you have yeah. an opinion on that? Yeah, when there's day six... You know, I definitely use it if they're there. A day five would always get used first because the day sixes have made blastocyst a day later, so they are slower. Um, so we'd definitely use the day fives first. So say, for example, you've had day fives and you've used them and you've got day sixes left, I definitely think they're still worth using because we still get pregnancies from those embryos. Um, the chance of pregnancy is lower, I believe the studies are showing. Um, studies do show if they're genetically tested embryos, your chance of pregnancy is the same uh, regardless of day five or day six. Um, but yeah, a lot of people have actually sent me messages saying, you know, do I even bother transferring my embryo because it's a day six? Um, and you know, that for, first of all, that's to be discussed with your doctor and your clinic. But second of all, yes, because we wouldn't have frozen it if we thought it was a waste of time. Uh, people wouldn't be doing day six transfers if they were a waste of time. So even if your chance of pregnancy is less, there's still lots and lots of babies born from day sixes. Wow. Fascinating. 
fascinating. We can all get so hung up on this system, though. How absolutely? How, um, oh, how do you recommend? Like, I mean, like you said, every lab, every doctor, every clinic is going to have their own system. What do you recommend to people to not get so hung up in the weeds? with this grading system? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So my big thing is that, you know, you don't need to be concerned with the grading because whether your embryo is a grade A or a grade B, like it, it doesn't really matter because your chance of pregnancy is what it is. And whether I tell you it's a grade A or whether I tell you it's a grade B, your chance of pregnancy is still your chance of pregnancy. Um, and there's nothing you can do to change those embryos that you've got unless you're, you know, unless, you, unless you've got really, really poor embryos and, you know, you want to think of ways that you can improve your egg health or your sperm health and get better embryos in the future, then you can start worrying about it maybe. But, you know, if you've got embryos that are there and I always think there's no point in stressing about it because there's there's not much you can do about it and you're going to probably use those embryos anyway. Um, a lot of patients when they come in have an embryo transfer. Um, see, if it was me, I'd be wanting to know all about it and all about the grade and what can you tell me about it and does it look good, does it not look good? Most patients actually don't. Most patients are just like, oh, okay, I don't know what I'm looking at so they don't get stressed at all but you definitely do get the ones that are really freaking out about it and what's that little thing there and why does it look like that and why is it doing that? But, you know, stressing about it's not going to change the fact that you're still going to get it put in and it's still going to have that chance of pregnancy that's, you know, when it's in there growing happily. And I just, I just have to say the way you guys even are able to analyze the embryos is fascinating to me because it really just looks like a bunch of bubbles, you know, <laughs> it just, it just looks like a bunch of bubbles, but you guys are looking and you are seeing all of this stuff. You know, it, it's just fascinating to me. And like, even on my first embryo transfer, um, it started to hatch. And like, my doctor showed me, you know, the location. It was like, you know, if the embryo was a, a clock on the wall, it was starting yes. to hatch around like six o'clock. Um, and, and I was like, what? I just, I, I just couldn't, I was like, I, I feel like I'm looking at a magic eye bubble right now. Just, like, um, how, how, like, what kind of training do you go through to just look like, to be able to, to look at this stuff and know what you're seeing? Yeah, yeah, because it's so funny because I look at so many embryos and people send me embryo photos and I see so, yeah, I see so much and there's so much to see and so much to note and point out and people are always really surprised, like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that you can see that much from it. Um, yeah, we do get a lot of training into um, what exactly we're looking for and how to note the different qualities and, um, you know, things to note down that may be poor quality, like are the cells pitted? Can we see little vacuoles? Is it dark? Is it grey? Um, you know, we spend a lot of time staring, staring. We'll take an embryo, you know, for example, if we thaw an embryo, we'll take a photo of it, we'll just stare at it to see what we can see. <laughs> oh my um, gosh. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we do get um we do get a lot of um a lot of training in that and um and so that we can get as much information as we can because um 
the whole world of IVF is there's nothing that's a guarantee, unfortunately. And the best thing, the best way that we have is by looking, you know, our best chance is by looking at the embryo and getting as much information as we can. So that's what's called morphology assessment. There is time-lapse assessment as well, which is where they have the little cameras in there. Um, but really that's that's the best we can do is we need to do the best we can to get as much information as we can uh, to choose the best embryo that we can. During my first frozen embryo transfer, I must have emailed my doctor three times (laughs) asking her for the specific checklist that the lab goes through to make sure that they didn't mix up my (laughs) DNA with somebody else's DNA and they got my husband's sperm with my eggs. Um, How can I make sure that... (laughs) But the embryo that is being transferred is my embryo. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's funny. I had someone ask me that the other day and she was quite stressed about it. And I thought, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. It's, it's I a really, very, it's I a think it goes thing. through so many people's head. And just not nobody, not many people actually voice it. Um, yeah, so all labs have what's called quality control. We've all got policies and procedures in place for every step of the way. Different clinics will have different equipment that they use, such as barcode readers or scanners, little handheld scanner devices, um, all the dishes. So um, the dishes that your eggs go into have like three points of identification on there. So I know you don't want to be, you know, you want to be a person, not a number, but, you know, at your clinic you'll have a number. And um, so, So you have like your name and your number and your date of birth on there. And then when those eggs need to go into a different dish, then it'll get cross-checked with that name, the date of birth and the code. And then, um, you know, there's other scientists around to double verify things. So, for example, when I do an embryo transfer and I get my dish out that's got the embryo in it, I'll get a second embryologist over to verify that. Um, So every step of the way, you're getting your double verification. You've got your three-point witnessing. You've got, um, and as I said, some labs have different equipment that they use. I mean, that makes me so relieved. (laughs) (laughs) We have to be so careful. And that's why being an embryologist, and there's been studies on this, it's actually quite a stressful job because if you think about it, if you think about all the careers in the world and however many different jobs there are in the world, there's not many jobs in the world that have like a 0% room for error and really our job is a zero percent room for error we don't have we can't muck up we can't make a mistake so because we are in the lab and we're constantly checking we're constantly reading we're constantly verifying we're constantly you know we could be doing something and then somebody else calls us over to verify something you know we're getting an embryo out of the freeze and we need to double check that embryo you know double check the barcode for someone else um we have to be on the ball constantly and it does get really draining. Um, so we've all had days where, you know, they've been very long days and we've started very early and we've had lots of eggs to ICSI and then embryos to thaw and we've been there really late. So it does get quite draining. So that's why, um, well, luckily where I am, they don't put you in the lab every single day if they can help it. Sometimes, absolutely, yes, you are in there every single day, but where they where they can, they try and, you know, swap us out, give us an office day or give us a day in sperm lab or give us a day to get some other stuff done because, yeah, being in embryology lab, it is full on with the with all the checking and the and the witnessing, and and the concentration. Yes, I mean you're you're you cannot if you have a zero percent chance of error 
If that's your goal, oh my gosh. I mean, how many cups of coffee do you got to drink every morning? <laughs> well, that's the thing. You can't drink too much coffee because then you get jittery. And when you're doing an <laughs> Etsy, you can't get jittery. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, that dovetails yes. into my next question. Can you speak a little bit to um, ICSI versus natural in vitro for fertilization? Yeah, conventional IVF, yeah. Um, so there's going to be specific situations where ICSI is indicated, such as where there's a really, really low sperm count, low motility, low morphology, or there's been cases of previous really poor fertilization in the past, um, or surgically retrieved sperm as well. If the sperm's been retrieved surgically, we have to do ICSI. So in all of those cases, doing ICSI is, you know, that's fine. Um, I do know that some labs will routinely do ICSI on everyone. Um, I don't see the need for that personally. If it was my eggs and the doctor said, I want you to do ICSI, then that's fine. I would do that. That's perfectly fine. Um, however, if there was no indication for it, then conventional IVF is great. Um, you're manipulating the eggs less. You're letting the sperm get in on their own. Um, so, I mean, yeah, the, the success rates with both, there's just as many pregnancies from both. From what I understand, the studies don't show a massive difference. Um, and the, um, yeah, the doctor just needs to tell us which one they think is more, is most suitable for a particular patient circumstances. Are you familiar with the term pixie? Yes. Yep. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so that's physiological. So in ICSI is intracytoplasmic sperm injection and PIXI is physiological intracytoplasmic sperm injection. So what that means is you're using a special media or a special dish to select the sperm. So where I am, we use a media called uh, sperm slow. So you just place the sperm slow in the little dish that you're making, your, your ICSI dish that you're going to be putting your eggs and sperm in and um, the sperm will then swim into that media and they will bind to, if they've got the, if they've got lots of uh, how I'm trying to think of the word off the top of my head, how you're on a day's receptors, then they'll bind to that media and they'll stop. So they'll still be moving, but they'll be stopped. They won't be able to swim free. And uh, we will, we then know that that should have, in theory, that sperm has an intact DNA membrane and we can select that. So it gives us a better selection of sperm. I don't think the, the studies show a massive difference in success rates, but it's still a great technique to use to um, be able to do what we think is the best for selecting a sperm. I, um, in my own personal situation, we, um, are dealing primarily with male factor infertility. And yeah. so it was definitely recommended to us to do pixie. Yes. Um, and I'm so glad we did. I mean, you guys are just like every day there's a new trick out there <laughs> that you guys are figuring out. Like, how do you stay on on the cusp of all this new technology. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's lots of research labs out there. I'm not involved in research. I'm a clinical embryologist. So I don't do any research, but there's so, so much research going on. And um, yeah, just as it comes out and as te different techniques become available, we wait and see what the studies say and uh, see what we think is, is going to be the next, you know, best thing to try. Anything you wish people knew before they went into an embryo transfer? Um, I don't want to sound 
you know, I, I don't want to freak people out and I don't want to sound negative, but I wish that people knew that it's not a guarantee because I find that that comes as quite a shock to a lot of patients. Um, I wish that a lot of people knew that the most beautiful embryo in the world can be genetically abnormal and even the embryos that are tested to be genetically normal, uh, they're not guaranteed to work. Um, so I know that that does come as a shock and understandably, you, you know, you're going through all of this, you, you're putting your body through a lot and you're finally, you know, it takes such a long time to get to the point where you've actually got embryos to transfer um, and to get to that stage and um, have it not work I can understand is completely devastating but I think um, I don't know how the doctors explain things to patients at the start I'm not sure but I do find that um, people contact me all the time and they just seem very very surprised that they didn't know that it wasn't going to work mm, mm. Um, that's re- isn't that heartbreaking it's just so heartbreaking absolutely um, yeah, so much invested in the process and yes. yeah. Um, what makes your blood boil about infertility? People judging other people for going through fertility treatment. Um, and I am a Catholic myself. I've been raised Catholic and, um, I find that, well, some people just don't want to go through fertility treatment, even though they need it because they are religious and they know that their families will frown upon it. I've had people contact me and tell me that that they um, that they want to go through fertility treatment because they need to, but they're too scared to tell their families. Um, and I just believe in this day and age, nobody should be judging anybody for the steps that they have to go through to to actually finally get their family. And getting a family these days can take so many different steps and so many, you know, there's so many different ways, whether you need a sperm donor whether you need a surrogate whether you're going to adopt and I don't think it's anybody's business to be judging other people for how they need to do it yeah yeah it's so it's so cruel you know the process is already so grueling exactly. and to have that type of judgment being thrown at you um yeah. it's another layer of hardship exactly right um okay so as we round up here um, I have a question for you that is so not IVF um, related. Yeah. Okay. So I know that you're in Australia, but New Zealand, New Zealand is very close to you guys. Do, yes. do you know about Gloria Vale? No. <laughs> oh, no. I don't. <laughs> the religious cult in New Zealand that like um they all like live in these bunkers and everything and um they wear like prairie dr- dresses i'm obsessed with them and so no, i cannot say i've heard of it oh no this is just this is really going off the rails um <laughs> well anyways <laughs> i always want to talk about gloria vale and i yeah. am with an ignorant assumption that since you live in Australia, you know what's going on in New Zealand. Oh, man. I am going to look it up, though, when I get off this call. Please look it up. It's fascinating. If you like cults, you're going to love Gloria Vale. Oh, Um, that's so funny. Kristen, how can people follow you and connect with you? So I'm on Instagram and I'm at I like my eggs fertilized. Um, and because I'm in Australia, the fertilizer is with an S, not not a Z. Um, so yeah, you can find me on there for now. One day eventually I will have a website up, but for the time being, find me on Instagram. 
thank you so much. This has been an honor and a pledge. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been an honor to be on your show. All right. We'll be in touch. Ciao. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Me, Myself, and Millie. Follow us on Instagram at Me, Myself, Millie for more podcast updates. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe and share on social media. A special thanks to my husband, Rowan Brooks, for technical support and Cal Reichenbach, who did all the music you heard in this episode. You can check him out at calzonemusic.com. Thanks, cutie bombs, and see you next week.